you know, we're taught in this, these white systems that we're in charge and that we can't give up our power in the room. And one of the first things was I just gave up that power to my people. Basic human rights, where does it come from? Where do we go from here? Where are our basic human rights? Where does it come from? Where do we go from here? Too much white noise, white, white, white noise. Welcome to White Noise, the podcast of the Indigenous Law and Justice Hub at Melbourne Law School. You just heard our soundtrack, White Noise, written and recorded by our friend John Wayne Parsons, Yagara and Ugaram Lay baritone singer and manager at Marat Barak, the Melbourne Institute for Indigenous Development. I'm Janae Dwyer, research fellow, all-around task doer and now podcast host at the Indigenous Law and Justice Hub. I'm a non-Indigenous lawyer of Anglo-Indian heritage, and I'm so lucky to be learning about First Nations advocacy and justice at the Hub every day. Today, I'm sharing a conversation with the incredible Wurundjeri and Narei Ilam Wurrung woman and Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, Deputy Chair of the Uruk Justice Commission. We got together and recorded on Suan's country in Nam at Melbourne Law School in the digital studio. We pay respects to the elders of these countries, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening. Suan has worked in Aboriginal child and family welfare for over 20 years and is recognised for her work on trauma. Suan is one of five commissioners of the Uruk Justice Commission currently underway in Victoria. In Suan's words, Uruk Justice Commission is Australia's first formal truth-telling body. We are a Royal Commission and we are for the state of Victoria. And Uruk means truth in Wamba Wamba. The first formal truth-telling process in Victoria has the important task of looking into past and ongoing injustices experienced by traditional owners and First Peoples in Victoria in all areas of life and since the beginning of colonisation. The Commission will run for at least three years. We discuss the challenges of setting up and reimagining a Royal Commission to do this work with authenticity and safety to hold people through this process. Under Victoria's treaty framework, the truth-telling work of the Commission will feed into the treaty process, forming a foundation for negotiation and a public record to build understanding and treaty readiness amongst us all. And a reminder that the views of our incredible guests on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views or research of the Indigenous Law and Justice Hub. This conversation discusses themes of colonisation, genocide and racial violence. If this conversation raises difficult feelings for you, we encourage you to seek out some of the resources in our show notes. You can find the show notes and a full transcript of this episode on the Hub's website. Luanne, tell us about yourself, where you come from, who your mob is and the values that drive you in your work. Yeah, so I'm a Wurundjeri Narei Ilam Wurrung woman, so I'd also like to acknowledge country and my uh, elders and ancestors. 
we've got a voice today because of all of those that come before us, a lot of people that fought hard for us to be here. I guess the values that, that drive me are the same values as my mob, that we're community, that we do things together, but particularly we care about our future generations and um, also being a mum, that drives me a lot to be able to do the work that I do. But it's also, it is about justice for our people and how do we be part of a, a community that helps seek justice for our people for all those wrongs that have done mm-hmm. to us. So we can't do it alone and we do it together. And I think I just want to add to those pieces of work that are being done. And I didn't set out to be where I am today. I set out to make a difference for my people but again, my education was later in life and not, um, I hated school and we were the only Aboriginal family at our school and I struggled and I still struggle with universities today. I'm dyslexic, I'm highly dyslexic and uh, to get to where I've, I've gotten, you know, I've finished my master's in social work and just about to, to look at a PhD, but to be able to have people that it took me on that journey and they weren't Aboriginal people, they were white people and, the, and it wasn't condescending in any um, way, shape or form. But to have the backing of my mob to do that, I don't mind working in uncomfortable and so I'll go into those spaces that our mob are vulnerable in and try and change them so they feel safe in them. I think some people have to make a stand. I was, you know, I'm really honoured that I have uh, strong women in my family, really strong women, that I've been, you know, able to learn from and guide me to sort of be where I am. And I watched, you know, growing up, my dad go to meetings and just do what needed to be done, but even the injustices that happened to him. So it's not only fighting for my daughter, but also those before me that didn't get their piece of justice. And so that's what really drives me. And it's not... I didn't feel like I needed to go to uni. I thought, you know, there are skills you learn, of course, and and information you learn um, and you need it, but you also feel like you're given into the white system. So it's it's really, it's like working at Uruk. We're in this white system but fighting for justice for our people. So how do we use this system against them? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. So your background is as a cultural and clinical therapist and a social worker with a long history in Aboriginal health, including at the Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency and SNAKE, the National Voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children. You're recognised for your work on trauma, often reflected that lawyers who are working with people in really tough situations, and I wish I'd been taught more about trauma and its impacts and supporting people through this in legal education. So I wanted to ask you, what are some of the key misconceptions about trauma and particularly trauma experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here? One of the things that I always, you know, done lots of training with people around trauma, one of the things I always, you know, say to practitioners in any discipline is generally people come across angry and it's the trauma response. Mm. Um, Trauma is, it's something that happens to you that overwhelms and you can't cope. And if you think about that from 1788 and, you know, colonisation and parents trying to survive and children being taken and you think about that through all the generations, it interrupts a lot of your skills as a parent, general life skills. It interrupts your brain development. And so 
anybody that deals with people, particularly in their hard times and doesn't understand trauma, it's actually you're not getting the full uh, responses of people of what they need to say because you, generally most people become frustrated and our mob gets the raw end of the stick majority of the time and so they're already angry and it just builds. And so if the trauma started from your grandparents to your parents, it just gets passed down. It's what you can't see that it, that it affects you. So it's complex but it's also understanding the other person's perspective of why they are where they are. And it comes back to your way of dealing with people and having empathy and compassion, but also what you hear them saying underneath that trauma. Particularly, the, so I think it's 20 years with um, the at-home care system and juvenile justice system, and specifically parents that are losing their children at, at court and then they've never seen a, a lawyer before and they all of a sudden come in and they're asking them all these questions. They're overwhelmed. They're about to lose their child, you know, and they can't grasp it and there's emotions involved. And if you understand trauma, you've sort of got a window of tolerance and they've already been pushed out of that, so they're, gonna, they're heightened and they're already going to go off, you know. And understanding that trauma response is really important in those stressful situations, particularly court, and, and you see it. A lot. Uh, something I did with an elder um, who was stolen gins is he used to come in and yell a lot, and no one in um, our office wanted to talk to him. <clears throat> Pardon me, because once someone starts yelling, you don't listen. So I remember saying to him, "Uncle, let's talk about trauma." We had a really quick one hundred and one on trauma. I said, "So when you yell at people, that's just trauma talking." So next time you come in, to you know, just ask for me, and we'll sit down and talk. And after a while of talking, when he started yelling, he goes, oh, that's my trauma again. What do I got to do? I've got to stop. I've got to breathe. So we were able to teach him that if he stops and breathes and it's okay to stop conversations in the middle and whatever it is, to have those moments to think is okay. And that rushed situation was never helpful for him. So he had a new way of talking and of saying, I'm going to stop now because my trauma is talking and I'm going to yell at you or swear at you. And it was helpful for him for a lot of for a lot of things that he had to do in life mm-hmm. yeah what advice would you give to lawyers or to law students about how trauma might impact their work you know we're taught in this these white systems that we're in charge and that we can't give up our power in the room and one of the first things and I was trained in a white system was I, I just gave up that power to my people and because I wasn't in charge they were it's their story I would just have empathy and compassion and I think, you know, that's a big one, particularly for our mob because there's so many injustices that have happened and it doesn't matter, I think, which area of law there's something in it because, you know, we're custodians of this land and, and so if it's even if it's something to do with land, there's, there's something in that. Being a therapist, I sort of probe people a bit for their story and I think understanding their story helps you they're here it's their life they have control you don't lose anything you actually gain something because whatever discipline of practice you're in by understanding and knowing their story it helps you with the next person and you learn a lot of of the people that come to you and they come to you because they need help and we can't be the experts in everything so they are the experts in their life and I think if we remember that, it's, it's helpful.
is so important, I think, for everyone working in the system, but particularly lawyers who aren't often reminded of that from the system that Mm. they work in, that they keep coming back to it regularly. The role of the Europe Commission is to enable truth, understanding and transformation in relation to First Peoples' experiences of colonisation. That is to say that you're tasked with the role not only of capturing stories, but making sure that they're understood by the wider public and making recommendations on systemic reform. In your interim report, a line that stood out to me was that many elders have questions about Europe, such as how it'll be different. Perhaps speaking to the many inquiries that have come before where First Nations people have generously shared their stories with not enough understanding or transformation. Mm. What motivated you to get involved and put yourself forward to be a commissioner in this historic process? That sounds big. It is. It's massive. Mm-hmm. And we're reminded daily how, how big the task um, is. And the reason is my background in trauma and understanding. I don't want people re-traumatised and I want people held in a space that they feel safe to tell their stories. And then how those stories are then put into recommendations. I felt I could help assist in that process. And knowing community, I know, um, I know a lot of community as well, which helps bring trust and it needs to be authentic. You know, we can't just go out saying we just want your story. You know, we need to really listen. And, and having uh, the training in those areas, I thought I would be an asset to the commission. And so that's why I did it. And um, I nearly pulled out a few times because it's so big. But we managed to get through and, and I'm here now and we're a year in and... You know, I wake up some days going, am I still a commissioner? I can't believe this because it's such an honour. And even though we've done that five weeks on country and heard elders' voices, who else gets to hear that? Like, there's stories that already in five weeks that will never leave me. And so who else gets those experiences of hearing the words of wisdom and sorrow and pain or resilience from our elders. And so that's what I'm here for. And to be able to carry those through into something tangible is really important. And that line you said that, you know, many elders had questioned um, about your book, such as how it would be different. So we currently have the Assembly. And so the Assembly pushed for us and then the government agreed and they wrote the letters patent together. Part of what we have to do within the letters patent states that any information that would inform future treaties. With our interim report, our interim report wasn't just given to the governor, it was also given to the First People's Assembly. So there's already a balance there. And the fact that the recommendations will be the same, they'll go to both, but we'll also have an Aboriginal body that can push those recommendations, which hasn't been done before, which gives us hope. And the thing we've been saying to elders is we just want a a living document, not something that sits there and collects dust, that we have a body that will be able to push those recommendations forward, which also means all those recommendations before um, deaths in custody and the Bring Them Home report, you know, and all those little inquiries, we'll be using those while making recommendations or in our research to see what people have already done. Uh, It's big. It goes from 1788 to current. So we have to draw on work that's already done. It's a big mandate for such a short time. We were originally given three years and we've asked for an extra two. So hopefully, I think we are going to get the two years, but that will still leave some of it undone um, that we won't be able to get to. To bring together everything that's come before. Exactly. Yeah.
What advice do you give to elders and others engaging with the Commission about how their voices and stories will be valued and heard to inform future action? So one of the things is this is a first in a role commission is we've got Indigenous status sovereignty principles. So rather than, I'm not sure, like bringing them home report, there was lots of stories just out there and published on websites. And with uh, Uruk, our Indigenous data sovereignty principles mean you tell us how we use your data. So in the interim report, you'll see lots of quotes from elders. Uh, There were a lot more, but they didn't want them used. And Mm -hmm. so at the end of a Royal Commission, it's all packaged up and given back to the government. So we're actually trying to change laws at the moment. So it goes back in a black box and they can't access and use those stories unless they've been given permission. Um, So some people might want theirs just to be their family. They might not want anybody to know. They may want them just open and public, which is fine, or they may just want to use with their own clan or group. You know, they Mm -hmm. get to say they can have parts that are public and parts that are private, which we've already started doing as well. So this is a first. We've had to build a whole computer system, so I'm becoming an IT expert too, (laughs) um, around how how this works and people have already started asking us about Indigenous data sovereignty principles and um, Commissioner Maggie Walter, that's her area of expertise. They can be guaranteed they will be protected in those areas. We also have supported submissions and so we'll have someone support them doing their submission if they don't feel comfortable doing it themselves. But also knowing from a trauma perspective, we won't introduce new relationships. We will support their support people If they don't have support people, then we will support them. So the Commission's role in developing understanding of the general public really reminds me of the Commission's counsel and our friend Tim Goodwin's words at the launch of the Indigenous Law and Justice Hub that truth-telling necessitates truth-listening by non-Indigenous people. What are your hopes for how non-Indigenous Victorians will engage with the Commission's work? People have to be prepared, right, because truth-telling is hard, but for non-Indigenous people, it's harder to hear. It's so hard to hear. And it's not a blame game and it's not a to make you feel guilty. It's that understanding. We need people to understand that the narrative of Victoria has been written by the coloniser. And this is the first time our voice will be heard and form part of that. And so it doesn't take anything away from people. And this is what I keep telling people. We're not taking anything away from you. We're actually trying to enrich you and and come together at the end of this for a better Victoria. I sound like a politician now. (laughs) It's what we've got to do. We've got to bring along the broader Victoria. This is so different. This has to be different and it can't be the same because it's Indigenous-led as well. So we'll use all forms of media that we possibly can but we really need to use our people's stories you know it's bringing along the hearts and minds the other thing is people need to be able to trust us there can't be any truth without trust so we have to gain the trust of not only our own community but the larger community and how how do we do that without diluting stories or without worrying about things like white guilt or you know or people going here we go again the aboriginal people are at it again and so we it's a big task and we're still figuring it out but we've got lots of allies as well that have asked us to come and speak and we've got to aim it at everybody and it's um a difficult task and i'm the thing is i ask people to tell people about it and to talk about it and to make it part of their conversation so that other people talk about it
it's big and we're still, I think it's going to change considerably as we go along on what we hear. And in our interim report, we did put in video. So if you go into the online one and you, you can see video of the elders talking, it's difficult because I see us as facilitators of voice and truth and it's not for us to tell the story. If they can tell the story themselves. So we've got lots of video and audio that we do. I imagine part of that is that there are a lot of people in Victoria who would think that they did know our history and that first coming mm. to readiness. And we see that as, you know, discomfort in the classroom. Sometimes we're teaching where people really did have a sense that they knew the history or that they had a sense of what had happened and the the coming to know what you didn't know before you can yeah. learn the truth. And yeah. What advice, I guess, would you give to people coming through that experience? I always tell people, do the research of just the land you live on or the land you work on first and have a good understanding of that because from that, if your interest isn't sparked, I don't know what will spark it because then you can start to hear about, you know, other areas in, in Victoria or other areas and wherever you go, just understand who the traditional owners. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to start big and you know there's so many cultural sites out there to visit and go and explore and understand the land you you live on it sounds pretty simple right but it's a huge thing it's a huge Open thing in your heart and yeah. Mind, yeah yeah so Europe's vision is a transformed victoria based on truth and justice and grounded in first people's enduring spirit cultures and self-determination the Europe Commission has the powers of a Royal Commission, but operates very differently to the Royal Commissions that lawyers and law students listening might recognise, embedding Aboriginal ways of knowing, being and doing in all of its operations. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about what that looks like. Indeed, the interim report states, Europe's first year of operations involved many complex design and conceptual decisions about what its model should be. This is a unique challenge as every step required an evaluation of the cultural appropriateness of how a Royal Commission ordinarily operates. So mm. tell us about Europe's processes and particularly those relating to supporting social and emotional well-being of the people who share their stories. Yeah, so, I mean, even just to start with, we didn't just, we didn't want the normal court. No one's higher than anybody else. Aboriginal people on the stand will not be cross-examined about their truth, which is really important. We also did at the launch a cultural launch where we had ceremony. When we go into communities, we have a team that go in before us to make sure that people know we're there, but to also check what cultural protocols we need to follow. Welcomes done, cultural exchange if needed. What do people need culturally whilst in the space? And that's individual We've got all different cultural practices. We're not the same. You know, I ask questions sometimes like, what's the minimum of law required in this room at this time to make because people need to feel safe? Do we need a lawyer with that, you know? And that's not to offend the lawyers. That's to make our people feel safe to tell their truth. We didn't have officers at the time either. And so we, Charcoal Lane had closed down as a restaurant. And so we transformed that into what you might call a courtroom. But we we're all on the same level. Charcoal Lane was, so it was a restaurant recently, but before that it was the first Aboriginal health service. And so when I walked in, it wasn't set up at all at that point. And I was like, oh my God, those stairs. So I remember going there as a kid <laughs> and right on the top, they had the dentist. And I remember going there with my dad and getting told off 
uh, running up and down the stairs as kids. And I thought, wow, if I feel okay here and it brings up these memories and I feel good. Um, so it's intentional. Beautiful that you have a strong association positive with the dentist. Well, I, no, well, it wasn't. It wasn't. I was got told off for a but, but it was a place of gathering yeah. for our people. It might have been just a health service for, for outside people, but even our elders that walked in said, oh, I remember this place. I come here because of... And Fitzroy is quite significant yes. because uh, in the times when people started moving down to Melbourne, that's the area they moved into. So being on Gertrude Street and having that history, that rich, people automatically felt safe. And if you go on our website and listen to the hearings, you'll hear the trams in the background, you know, and it always felt good going in there. It always felt good going in there knowing, and for me, my dad's passed, my nan's passed, but knowing they were part of that in those buildings and that our people before us were there. There was a smoking done at the start and the end of the day. Everybody had a possum skin where they were sitting which was which was vitally important for for trauma. Absolutely. And I think that's a great reminder for students listening around understanding the background to all of these legal processes and dynamics and the justifications why they're happening because once you understand that you can understand how to play with it and what is mm. necessary, why it's necessary and what is just habits that have been formed through these institutions and what can you do and be thinking at every point about how to make people more comfortable. Yeah. So for different areas, smokings means different things. Generally, when I was brought up, I used to go to a lot of smokings with my dad to houses and that was to ward off um, anything that was there that didn't need to be there. And as you know, it's sort of grown into this thing where everybody wants a smoking sort of, and, and sometimes you feel, oh, is this, um, for me, it's about bringing people into the present moment, about thinking about what you're doing, and it's about cleansing and being mindful of the activities you're about to do. And it's sort of changed for me over time, and particularly being a therapist. So having a, a smoking, which generally is, you know, different forms of native plants that particularly in this space of, of people telling stories and trauma and the weight people hold on the way in. For our mob, it's a, it's a way of, one, it's a cultural practice that people feel safe around and comfortable. The actually inhaling of the eucalyptus as well is always good. But the knowing that you're there in this moment and that all that bad and it's setting your intentions for, for that hearing uh, for me, is is so important about bringing people into that moment. And it's usually done in the importance of the ceremony that's about to happen. And it is. A hearing is a ceremony. It's someone's life you're dealing with. And I don't think, I think people underestimate the fact that, particularly for your students, this is one person, but it's their life. Mm. I think we forget that we're dealing with someone's life choices, their consequences, and what this does for the rest of their lives. It's their life. You get to walk away. And I always think about that as a therapist or when I go to hear someone. So I get to walk away. They're stuck with this. So what's going to happen afterwards? And so um, setting the intention with a smoking for me helps start on a good, really, really good even keel. And I try to keep it burning so that if anybody... Uh, something I did learn from the Canadian experience was... And this was beautiful. She said, we gave people Kleenex tissues and then they'd tell their story and then we'd get someone cultural to take them out and they'd burn them in the, in the smoking because they're sacred tears. They're tears they've never cried, their stories they're never told. And that really hit me. 
and that fire is sacred, you know, because that's there and intentional for that day for them to make them feel safe. So there's a lot in those little things that you think, oh, we're just doing another smoking or they're just tissues we're going to cry with or great, they've told this story, it adds to the collection, but it's more than that. It's more than that for this person and it should be more than that for you as their lawyer or whatever it is you are. I guess I'm lucky I live and work on my country so I know what I can and cannot do. But definitely going into other people's countries, I'm very mindful of the history of the place, what the issues are of the place, knowing before we go in, but also who are the elders we need to speak to or whose community we need to speak to. Also, what is going on? So are there several places we need to hold hearings because some won't go to a certain area or their family feuds or their rifts in community, you know, which could, again, be from somewhere like native title? You, you just, you've got to know all this before you go in. So making sure that people feel safe and, and who they need with them is big part of it. But also we do have non-Indigenous people working with us Research, for instance. So there's a lot of research done. The British were great in keeping notes, right? So we'll go over that. But as an Aboriginal woman, I go over that with the lens of being in it. What does that really mean? And I got asked a really good question the other day, actually. If someone told you their truth, what are you comparing it with? And so, well, it's their truth and that's why they're coming forward. But generally, if you marry something up with something that a, a white settler had written, you can find the truth in there. And having uh, a non-Aboriginal, some of our non-Aboriginal researchers, we have to go back over it and look through the lens of a cultural lens or our lens, our worldview lens of as Aboriginal people to get to the to the middle of it. I've learned a lot about the law. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I've been from social work and, and part of what I see is how do we play with the law enough to get safety for our people? Because, you know, even bringing in wording other than evidence, witness, hearings so we've got and you'll have to forgive me I haven't got them with me and some of them I can't because they're not all our languages from Victorian languages and so Nathamuyap is our submission word so people don't have to be traumatized by wording that's happening and we've got a big thing about keeping it as simple as possible for our people and so anything we do that is going up on our website how do we make this public facing that everybody's going to be able to read and understand and I think that's really important. Like the Indigenous status sovereignty, we're unique, you know. We, we know it's different and it's, it's like setting up a business really, you know, because there's nothing giving to you. So, for instance, even going finding accommodation, so offices, we had three, knock, three knockbacks because they didn't want that sort of business wow. within their premises. And we're a Royal Commission and we're still get the racism imagine what that's like for aboriginal small businesses yeah but we're a royal commission and we've got these powers and people just go oh, we don't the board doesn't really want that here or you're not going to bring enough traffic through, through this area for us and we're all about you know he's just like what yeah you're part of history like this is big you know yeah. um you should be so lucky if yeah, they have so your we're not only do, yeah. yeah not only do we have to look at all the processes and how they've been set up and how we can do them differently uh, like reimagine what a royal commission is. We've got the racism, the institutional racism, the day-to-day -day racism that you don't think you would have. I mean, I might be a commissioner, but not much has changed for me in my life. It's still the same. I might get treated a bit better <laughs> by some people. But the changing of, because this is power dynamic, yeah, right? 
And and even though I'm a commissioner, I still feel that. I still have to walk into a place. The other day someone said to me, oh, can I give you some advice as a, a young woman and as a royal commissioner and as an Aboriginal woman from a white woman? Now, I don't know any other person on a royal commission that would be given, you know, that advice. I won't say my age, but I'm not young, you know. <laughs> I'm the youngest commissioner. I use that. I use that. I use that a lot. But, um, you know, there's not many people that would do that. So it's not, you know, we have to force our authority onto people, which isn't what we're used to doing. But um, Commissioner Bell, who is the former Supreme Court judge, who's another commissioner, is very good at saying, well, no, no, that's not okay and we'll need to ask the first peoples on the commission. Because there's stuff that we don't even see that happens that we're used to so everything has to change like absolutely everything even the way we speak to people so part of Uruk's mandate is to inquire into the breach and denial of first people's law and law at the hub we are particularly interested in how the different legal systems on this country interact and promoting respect for first nations law how has the commission considered first nations law so far we're a year in Mm. we're only a year in it is part of what's been said. So our initial outing that was our third attempt after COVID finally got out to speak to elders. That's been brought up several times about how we deal with that. Our letters patent talk about systemic injustices as well. And we're not, sh- we're not going to be shy. Like we're talking about not just tinkering around the edges but changing whole systems like we we this is, we don't get this chance again right mm. that will come into it because it's been spoken about i'm not sure how aware because for me as people are telling their truth and they submit their evidence that's where we're going to go and so it's definitely going to come up what that looks like or how that plays out i'd hate to preempt but it is going to be part of it and i don't want to preempt stuff because everywhere i went i heard different stories in a different context of law and law. Yeah. And you'd be amazed. Our people are so versed in white man's law now because they've had to be, Mm. right? And so some of them have already done this thinking and, you know, when that time comes to be able to pick their brains and talk about what that looks like and what they want to see and how that plays out, it's not for me to judge. See, this is even the difference of a Royal Commission, right? We're not just going to get all this evidence and go okay, this is what people said and this is what they want to see and this is our recommendation. It's going to be place-based and thematic-based. The the thing we've been hearing is what happens here in Melbourne or Nam, what happens here to what happens on the borders, right on the borders, is completely different. What they might say about law there to what they might say here could be completely different because each place has its own history, has its own stories. The interim report states... The government's Victorian Aboriginal Affairs Framework has included self-determination as its underpinning principle since 2018. It is clear, however, from the Commissioner's early discussions with elders through yarning circles, Nathamayoop and Warwick Turung, that current systems and policies have not delivered self-determination. First Peoples continue to experience discrimination, dispossession, exclusion and re-traumatisation. In his testimony, and Balet Kidyara, Marcus Stewart noted that true self-determination is being in the driver's seat about discussions that affect our lives. The task is how we can start reimagining the systems. So 
what does self-determination mean to you? And what sort of self-determination would you like to see for your daughter and her generation? I think self-determination has been bastardised. Mm. Like, it's everywhere mm. and it's in every government policy document and, you know. Yeah. Um, but we don't see it, as Marcus pointed out. For me, self-determination is being fully informed about a subject or a matter that you can make safe, healthy decisions about, right? That's what it means for me in my life. So I'm informed enough to be able to make these healthy decisions on behalf of me and my daughter um, that are safe and we can move forward. That for me also is what it means for our community. But we actually don't get the chance. And I think Marcus spoke about, you know, having the conversations. But for me, it's about having the conversations with ourselves about and having the authority to make the decisions and then those decisions being followed through. We're not even at that point. Mm. We're half the time excluded from the conversation. So how can we be self-determining? We have to reimagine the, the systems because they work, right? They work perfectly to exclude us and our voices aren't heard. So we have to reimagine these systems and after what whatever we've done with them they're probably I wouldn't call them systems but ways of being that we are heard and we have our fair say and that the outcome of having our say is that it's heard and, and we have you know less discrimination we have we'll have none I prefer none than less I should I you know maybe I'm thinking too large I don't know but that we're able to move forward. These systems that degrade us, denigrate us, kill us, take us away from our families, don't work for us. And we need a say in that. Mm. Or we just need to rip these systems apart and rebuild them. One of the things when we first, um, first met that you said that had stuck with me and has just come into my mind was you talking about um, how you encourage your staff to engage with community members and you telling the office to take their titles off their signature blocks and just put their nations and you said that's your credentials here. Yeah, that's on my signature block. I don't have anything that just says, you know, it says Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, Deputy Chair, Wurundjeri Naray Ellen Wurrung. That's it. Yeah, that's beautiful and I think so sums up the ethic of practice about being on you know, with people, not above them. I think that I, I did a talk the other day and someone was come out with me and she said, I'd never seen this before. And I said, well, and she said, I really noticed that everyone went around the room and, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a this, I'm a that. And she said, and it got to you and you just said, I'm a Wurundjeri Naray Ilan But it shows I'm not a commissioner. I am a Wurundjeri Naray Ilan woman. I'm more than, than, you know, people say, oh, wow, you're commissioner, that's pretty high. But being a Wurundjeri Naray Ilmarung woman is what's important to me, not being, do you know? Because that yeah. grounds me. That's what keeps me grounded. And she was just amazed at how people introduce themselves. And I don't even notice that anymore because I just do that. It's that authenticity, right? Mm. And I don't think, um, I remember as a, as a young caseworker going into a meeting and there was a lawyer and a psychologist and I remember feeling like I couldn't say anything because I had no title. And it's not about your title, it's about what you give to other people. And that's, that's the value for our people, is what you give 
to other people to enable them to have some self-determination in their own life. Mm -hmm. And I would really encourage students to think about what self-determination in their practice looks like for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. And what are, you know, if you're not an Aboriginal person, what are those credentials that you're bringing that are not your title? What What is your identity and what are you bringing to your role when you're working through systems that can put pressures around trying to change that? Mm. It's that giving up power, right, and being yeah. human because we are and no one's perfect, right? And we shouldn't hold power over people because we've gone to school longer or because we know more. You can judge people. It's easy to do. You know, we all do it, but it's about how do I make this person's life better? No matter what field you're in, if you get it right for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, particularly in a legal system, the way that you treat and honour them and the way you look at you doing things differently, then you've got it right for all people, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. You might have some expertise in the law, however, you know questionable limited that is but people are the experts in their own lives so you need both those expertises Mm. to come together to round out the podcast what are some of the moments that have stuck out to you so far most on this journey Uh, you know it's just how generous our mob are you know they've told i think you've mentioned it in here they've told their stories again and again and they're telling it again And we don't know the outcome, we don't know. But the generosity that people have shared with us, you know, we walk in and people think, oh, what's this? And they're a bit hostile. And you you walk out and people are hugging you. I don't need to be sitting on a big bench. I can walk around and I'm sitting with Arnie while she's talking to me, rubbing her back and holding her hand. Not only does that help me and that helps her, but it also helps both of us regulate the resilience and the courage like, I've just, I just have this faith in humanity again. You know when you lose it because the world's so shit mm. and that, you know, people are horrible and, you know, just things happen day to day. But to go out and have the honour of hearing people's stories, the resilience, I hate the word resilience, but that's all I can think of, the only word I can think of. They're f- putting their trust in us and their faith on a personal note I've heard so many my dad's been passed away 20 years but I've heard so many stories about some wonderful things that I wouldn't have known he'd done so that gives me the strength to actually continue doing what I'm doing and knowing I'm on the right the right path like there's there's some really I feel like a bit selfish in some of this because I'm thinking oh my god who gets to hear how honored am I you know but my role is just to hold people in a space where they can tell their truth and people coming and telling us stories that they haven't even told their families. I'm just blown away by that's that's why I know my life will be changed by these stories. I'm not by any way any illusion going into this that I'm going to hear some really horrific, horrible stuff. But I'm also going to hear some strength and resilience in these stories as well because they're sitting there telling you, right? So um, yeah, it's the generosity of people. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining us today and for all the generous stories that you shared and all of the work that you're doing that's going to make this such a bad place to be. So, oh, Thank you. Thank you for, for asking me and thank you for, for listening. Is there anything else that you'd like to record? <laughs> 
No, no, I'm fine. I'll sing a song now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Suanne, for sharing so generously with us today. And thank you to our audience for listening to White Noise. We would love to hear what you thought of this conversation. Basic human rights Where does it come from? Where do we go from here? Where are our basic human rights? Where does it come from? Where do we go from here? Community voice, a voice for justice, a voice for truth and reconciliation. Community voice, a voice for peace, a voice for mob and self-determination. Too much white noise, white, white. White noise, there's too much white noise, white, white, white noise.